Hear the word of the Lord. From Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. From Perga, they went on to Pisidian Antioch. And on the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the synagogue rulers sent word to them, saying, Brothers, if you have a message of encouragement for the people, please speak. Standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, Men of Israel and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. The God of the people of Israel chose our fathers and made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With mighty power, he led them out of that country and endured their conduct 40 years in the desert. He overthrew seven nations in Canaan and gave their land to his people as their inheritance. All this took about 450 years. After this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel, the prophet. Then the people asked for a king, and he gave them Saul, son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled 40 years. After removing Saul, he made David their king. He testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. And from this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior Jesus, as he promised. Before the coming of Jesus, John preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. And as John was completing his work, he said, Who do you think I am? I am not that one, no, but he is coming after me, whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, children of Abraham, and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and the rulers did not recognize Jesus, yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he was seen by those who traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, and they are now his witnesses to our people. We tell you the good news. What God promised our fathers, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second psalm, you are my son. Today I have become your father. The fact that God raised him from the dead, never to decay, is stated in these words. I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. And so it is stated elsewhere, you will not let your holy one see decay. For when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his fathers, and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. Therefore, my brothers, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is justified from everything you could not be justified from by the law of Moses. Take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I'm going to do something in your days that you would never believe even if someone told you. As Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. 
When the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and talked abusively against what Paul was saying. Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, We had to speak the word of God to you first, since since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord. And all who were appointed for eternal life believed. The word of the Lord spread through the whole region, but the Jews incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. And so they shook the dust from their feet in protest against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Amen. This is God's word. Please be seated. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that chapter 13 here in Acts marks a turning point in the book. That it's here that the church becomes a missionary church for the first time, and that's true. I've also pointed out a number of times that since we began our look at this book of Acts, that the narrative of Acts, the storyline, is structured according to Jesus' directive to his followers that they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And so Acts begins in Jerusalem and ends in Rome. Chapters 2 through 12 describe the mission at home in the provinces of Judea and Samaria. And now from Acts 13 onward, the narrative tracks with Paul and his mission to the Gentiles. And chapters 2 and 13 are parallel. And the disciples' mission at home and Paul's mission abroad begin the same way. Chapter 2 and 13 begin with the Christians gathered in prayer. In both chapters, there's a powerful and obvious manifestation of the Holy Spirit. Tongues of fire and strange speech in chapter 2. The spiritual encounter in chapter 13 that leaves Elimas the sorcerer blind. Both chapters 2 and 13 highlight the astonishment at the proclamation about what God is doing. And both chapters record a sermon. Peter's in chapter 2, Paul's in our text today in chapter 13. Paul is on his first missionary journey, his first of three. You follow the arrows and see it there. And this, his three journeys will be followed by a journey, this time to Rome, as a prisoner of the state. And we will get there in a few months from now. Saul and Barnabas have been commissioned by the Holy Spirit and by the church in Antioch. They've sailed first to the city of Salamis on the island of Cyprus. And crossing the island, they came to Pathos, where the encounter with Elimas the sorcerer took place. And that's what we talked about last week. 
And that's where we're picking up the text today. And I hope that you have your Bibles with you. You can follow along. You should bring them every week, by the way. I do. Verse 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in the province or the district of Pamphylia. Now notice here that Saul is now Paul. And he's going to be called by this Greek name for the rest of the book of Acts in keeping with this emphasis on the Gentile ministry. And notice too that it's no longer Barnabas and Saul, which it has been up until now. Now it's Paul and his companions. And Paul is the central character in this narrative from this point going forward. Here, John Mark, who has been with them as an assistant of some kind, leaves and returns to Jerusalem. We don't know why, it doesn't say, but it becomes clear later on that Paul was less than impressed by John's departure. And this is going to become a source of division between Paul and Barnabas at the end of chapter 15. And we'll come back to it when we get there. But now it is apparently just the two. Paul and Barnabas are left. They leave Perga on the coast and travel over the Taurus Mountains inland to Antioch, not Antioch in Syria, which is where they started from, but Antioch in in or near Pisidia in the larger province of Galatia. And so Paul is seeing here for the first time the people to whom he would later write in his letter to the Galatians. And at Antioch, when the Sabbath day comes, Paul and Barnabas go to the synagogue, the place of worship for the Jews. They still consider themselves faithful Jews. And they, as we do, rightly saw Christianity just as flowing out of the same stream as what we now call the Old Testament. So in the synagogue, there was a reading from the law and the prophets. That is, a section from the books of Moses, the first five books of the Old Testament, and a reading from somewhere else in the Old Testament chosen to complement whatever had been read from Moses. By the way, it wasn't the Old Testament then, it was just the scriptures. And it was customary, if uh, there was a visiting rabbi in the synagogue, it was customary to invite that rabbi to stand and to speak. And so the synagogue rulers invite Paul or Barnabas to speak. If you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stands and speaks and delivers the sermon that we've just read. He starts in verses 16 to 22 with a brief rehearsal of some of Israel's history. And as he does that, he mentions what the Jews would have considered the central pillars of Jewish religious history. God's choosing of the patriarchs, the deliverance from slavery in Egypt, the wilderness experience, God's giving them the land of Canaan, the kingship of David. Paul mentions all of these things, partially in order to establish himself as a reliable witness to the scriptures. But also, and I think more importantly, he says these things in order to set what he's about to say about Jesus in the context of Old Testament history. So having given this very brief synopsis of part of Israel's history, Paul then just leaps straight to Jesus, the Savior whom God has given to Israel from David's offspring. And from this point, Paul preaches in this synagogue in a Roman province the same sermon 
that Peter had preached in Jerusalem 10 years before and hundreds of miles away in the city of Jerusalem. Now, it's not a word-for-word same sermon, but he preaches the same things. Peter and Paul both use Old Testament prophecies and both use Psalm 16 specifically. Both of them talk about Jesus' death by crucifixion at the hands of the Gentiles. In Acts 2, Peter mentions lawless men, by which he doesn't just mean unscrupulous hooligans, but those without the law, by which he means the law of Moses and therefore non-Jews. Specifically, he mentions uh, Pilate, or Paul mentions Pilate. Both highlight that Jesus' death was in accordance with God's predetermined plan. Peter and Paul both highlight Jesus' resurrection, and they link it to David's words in Psalm 16. Both of them contrast the fact that David died and stayed dead, but that Jesus died and was raised back to life. Both emphasize that the apostles are witnesses to the living Jesus, and both end up declaring that in Jesus there is now forgiveness of sins. You've heard me say this many times as we've moved through the book of Acts. But the essential message of the early church was the same whenever they had a chance to speak it. In accordance with the scriptures, Jesus died, God raised him to life, and that because of that, forgiveness of sins is available. That's Peter's sermon. That's Paul's sermon. That's our sermon sermon. And after, P- after Paul finishes his sermon, the response is initially pretty favorable. Verses 42 and verse 43. As they went out, the people, that is those who were in the synagogue, begged that, uh, begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas who, as they spoke to them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. So great success in this first message in this city of Antioch. Great success. Lots of good message preacher handshakes at the end of the service. But the next week, the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. And I've said this before too. That's what the apostles proclamation was it was the word of the lord or the message of salvation it's called in verse 26 when god wants people to know about forgiveness in jesus it comes by words words accompanied by power and by action and by love but never the other way around never without the words never without the message but the synagogue suddenly this week doesn't like what's happening But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul by speaking abusively against what he was saying. Quite literally, speaking abusively against Paul. Contradicting his words and reviling him himself. There's no no spirit of debate here. There's no concern for the truth. There's no honest looking into the scriptures to measure what Paul is saying about Jesus against what God had promised in his word. No, it's out of jealousy because Paul has managed to draw a crowd. Out of jealousy, they contradict what Paul says and they revile him. They make it personal. 
But this makes Paul and Barnabas more bold. And so they say, it was necessary, this is their response, it was necessary that the word of God, this phrase again, that the word of God be spoken first to you. But since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. You remember in chapter 1 that Jesus had sent his followers to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles hear this from Paul and Barnabas, they are glad. They respond in great numbers. But the Jews conspire together with some of the people of influence in the city and drive Paul and Barnabas out. It's all well and good to hear a good message, Rabbi, but don't fill our synagogue with those people. There's too many of them. It changes the dynamic and we don't like it. Paul and Barnabas ticked off the wrong people, the ones with power, the core people, and they were forced out. But when they went, after they went, the disciples that had already been made in that city in however many weeks had lapsed were filled with joy. Okay, verse 49 says the word of God was spreading throughout the whole region. So this is not just a Sabbath till Sabbath. At some point after the second Sabbath, when the Jews got their act together and had Paul and Barnabas kicked out, disciples were being made in the city, in the region. The word of God was going forward. And those disciples were filled with joy and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. I wonder what it was like for those disciples after Paul and Barnabas were kicked out and had moved on to another city. What is it like to be a follower of Jesus in a city that is openly hostile to him and to the truth concerning him? We know a little bit about what that can feel like. We are not under persecution, most of us. We are not in danger of being evicted from our homes, kicked out of the city. But we know that our culture is openly hostile to the reality of Jesus. They like Jesus, good man, good teacher, but the idea that he's Lord of everything, including me, and that I'm required to submit my life under his authority, and he is the master of what decisions I make, what values I live from, what I do with my relationships and time and finances and work, that Jesus is the boss of me, that doesn't go over quite so well. And followers of Christ in India, in Pisidian Antioch, in Calgary, are always faced with a choice. Who am I going to follow? Am I going to follow Jesus? Do I believe God's word concerning Jesus? He died and rose, is Lord. Forgiveness is in him that my duty is to respond by believing and obeying. Am I going to embrace that? Or am I going to lay low to everyone else in the city, those with power, the rest of the general population doesn't give me too hard of a time. 
It's always the choice for us. It's always the choice, and there is no other choice. In any given moment of any given day, it is always Jesus or not. It might be Jesus or the world, Jesus or the culture, Jesus or what I want, but it's always Jesus or not Jesus. It's always the choice. And these disciples, early, early, early in their faith, were faced with that as well. And how did they respond? They were filled with joy and filled with the Holy Spirit. They had what they needed in God's Spirit. They had the evidence of real life change in their joy. And from there, the church in Galatia was born. I want to mention five things that come from this passage that never change and that, that underpin our whole faith as Christians. The first is that God is the actor. It's God who does it. Notice when Paul starts preaching and he gets to verse 17. Men of Israel and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. The God of the people of Israel chose our fathers. God made the people prosper. With mighty power, he led them out of that country. He endured their conduct 40 years. He overthrew seven nations in Canaan. He gave their land to his people as their inheritance. After this, God gave them judges until Samuel. When the people asked for a king, God gave them Saul. God removed Saul. God made David their king. God testified about David. From this man, David, God has brought to Israel the Savior Jesus. It's God who is doing it all along, right from the first moment of God's choosing of Abraham, right through building the nation and bringing Jesus to the people as he promised. God is always acting, sometimes despite the people. We know their story about the Israelites in the wilderness, how they complained and grumbled, and how it came to the point where God had to endure their conduct. Like literally, he bore them, put up with them. And yet even then, God continues to act. This whole work of redemption and salvation, all of God's good work in the world has always been his, his actions, always. And that's true for us today as well. Anything that the church will ever do in the world that is useful, that is good, that advances his kingdom, will be God working through the church. It'll be spirit-empowered people making a difference. It'll never be us deciding, hey, we should give food over here. We should send this group of people overseas and see if we can partner with something there. It'll always be led by God. And if somebody's life is changed, somebody comes to faith, God has done that. If God's kingdom comes, it's God who does it. It's always God who's acting. And Paul knows that. And we know that too. So what is God doing? Well, the second thing to notice here is that God's mission is for the whole world. Verse 47, when Paul says, you know what? You know what, synagogue, you know what, Jews, we had to. We were obligated to come and speak to you first. But if you don't consider yourselves worthy of eternal life and you reject all of this, we are turning to the Gentiles. 
And then verse 47, he says, he quotes the prophets. This is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. That's a quote from the prophet Isaiah. Israel existed as a nation, not so that they could just be God's people and enjoy his favor. They existed as a nation, as God's, God's people, in order that they might be a light so that the dark world could look and see there's a light over there. It is the God of Israel. They were a witness to the world, or were going to be, were supposed to be, but they rejected it. Paul comes back to this in Romans chapter 15. He says, verse 8, I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth to confirm the promises made to the patriarchs so that the Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing hymns to your name. Again, it says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and sing praises to him, all you peoples. God's agenda has always been a global one. It has always been for all of the people in the world. It has always been for a billion Chinese people. It has always been for some people that live down the street from here and who live next door to you. It's always been the people in your classroom, the people in the next cubicle. God's agenda has always been to be a light through his people for the world to see. So that the character and the reality of God might be made known and that people would be drawn to God by his action, but a light for the world. And the Jews didn't want it. They rejected it. They didn't Paul's phrase is interesting. They didn't consider themselves worthy of eternal life. They, they didn't think it was worth their while. They had no use for the proclamation of Jesus. Fine. You don't want it? We'll go to the Gentiles. God is the actor. God is one who always does it. God's mission and ours is for the whole world. In God's action, there is the reality that has always been the theological difficulty of what we call election and free will. Notice in verse 48 of chapter 13. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord. And all who were appointed for eternal life believed. All who were appointed for eternal life believed that there were some in the city whom God stirred and had his hand on and worked in such a way in their lives that they would believe. Even their belief was a work of God. And yet the flip side tension of that is the free will aspect Back in verse 46, where Paul again says, we had to speak the word of God to you first, but since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. That their rejection of it was willful. They chose it. And 
there's a tension there that I cannot answer for you. How God's election and determined will and his, his decision to act in, in, in the life of someone to bring them to Christ. And yet the personal choice to refuse someone else, to refuse the gospel. How those two things work together, I do not know. I do not know. But the scripture is clear that when somebody becomes a Christian, it's because God has done it. And I don't know anybody who is a passionate, passionate lover of Jesus Christ who would say that this is something that I have done. I know, being a Christian for many, many years, I know that I am a Christian not because I brought anything to the table, not because I had anything in me that was prone to lean Godward. But I was a rebel, I was selfish, and I'm a Christian today because God has been faithful for many years. Not because I've been faithful for many years. And if I have the privilege to stand here with my Bible open and to speak to you about Jesus, that says more to you about God than it does about me. And if we are followers and believers in Jesus Christ, this gives us opportunity, without understanding the whole picture, this, this gives us opportunity to say to the Lord, Thank you. I can't believe that you were so good to me to save me and to change my life when I could not, could not, would not have done it on my own. I don't understand the ways of God. I don't know why God put his hand on my shoulder. But I know that he put his hand on my shoulder. And he has saved me. He didn't just give me the information that I needed and I responded to it. He saved me. And you, if you are saved this morning. Don't understand it, but it's there. Number four, I want to point out again, and this is essentially what the whole sermon was about last week. Um, preaching about the word of the Lord last week and on my email, somebody texted me on their phone at 12.05, I'm not even sure we we're out of the sanctuary yet, 12.05 and said, right on. And I got that the next day. The word of the Lord. It is all about the word of the Lord. Notice how often that phrase shows up in this chapter. Chapter 13 and verse 44. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Verse 46. Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, we had to speak the word of God to you first. Verse 48. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord. In verse 49, the word of the Lord spread throughout the whole region. And that is the theme of Acts, by the way, the word of the Lord advancing. I like the phrase in verse 48. The Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored, literally glorified, the word of the Lord. We don't usually think in those terms. We think of, I don't know, needing or depending on the word of the Lord, but glorifying God, honoring the Lord. And that the scripture helps us do that. But the Gentiles honored 
the word of the Lord. They glorified it. They were so enthralled with the gospel of Jesus Christ from the Old Testament throughout, as Paul preached it. They were so enamored with this news that they glorified the news itself. They honored the gospel. Now, did they worship the book? No, they didn't. But they gave glory to the truth concerning Jesus Christ. And that is always how it needs to be. We cannot honor Jesus and glorify him and set aside the word. Do without it. Or think that it doesn't matter somehow. The truth itself concerning Jesus Christ, what God himself has spoken concerning Jesus Christ, is worthy of honor and glory. And we as Baptists, evangelical Christians, evangelical, by the way, it comes from the word the evangel, which means the good news, the gospel. Evangelical Christians are defined as people who honor the word. That's what makes a Christian an evangelical Christian. Bible-based, scripture-rooted. And we as Baptists, we honor the word. That's why it's read and taught every week, glorifying the word. And if there's one thing that the book of Acts makes clear, and I keep hammering this week after week because it shows up week after week, if there's one thing, is that, it's that the kingdom of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and the growth of the church advances as the word of God is proclaimed. And people hear it and honor it. And because of the work of God in them, it resonates in them. And they says, that is true. That's what I need. I can live my life under this truth. I can live my life from this book. And it works. And at the end of the day, there is fullness of life and eternal life and even more forgiveness of sins. Because the word of God does that in people. You know why? Because the word of God is inspired by the spirit of God. And when the spirit speaks from here and listens from here, it changes people. And the word is glorified, honored. People get saved. Lives are transformed. The world is changed. And the kingdom advances. They honored the word of the Lord. So God is the actor. He does the work. God's mission is for the whole world. This reality of God's choosing, that if we are saved, it's because God has done it. The word of the Lord as the theme of the text and of the book of Acts. And fifth and finally, and most importantly, if your neighbor's asleep, this is the time to wake them up. You laugh, but some probably are. The centrality of Jesus May I never get tired of talking about him from here. Um, A little more than a year and a half ago, two Septembers ago, we decided as a church that the profile of Jesus needed to be elevated. We needed to say his name more often, needed to sing about him more often. I needed to preach directly about him more often. Life groups were studying him, his life, his teaching. But that's not just a phase in the life of the church. Jesus is central always and must always be. And the day that I open my Bible and preach a sermon but don't point you to Jesus, that's the day you have a membership meeting and decide whether I need to stay or not. Because any preacher worth his salt, that is his job. To open God's word and say, here is Jesus to the people. 
and then help you think about why does this matter? But Paul's sermon was all about Jesus. He gives his Israelite history synopsis and jumps right to talking about Jesus. Talks about the fact that Jesus is the Savior that God has promised. Talks about the fact that Jesus died just like God said he would. The fact that God raised him from the dead and lives now. And then says that through this man, forgiveness of sin is proclaimed to you. That's where, that's where they always ended up. Through Jesus Christ, forgiveness of sin is proclaimed to you. You can be justified or freed from the things that the law could never set you free from. Our job as a church, as the church's job in Acts and God's job throughout Scripture and the Holy Spirit's job, has always been to testify to Jesus Christ. It's always, it's always been that. We preach it here. And you, you listen to it every Sunday, I hope. If I ever miss him, tell me. But you listen to it every week. We study it. We read about it. But we also then, on Monday, go. And we bring Jesus and proclaim him in our workplace, in our schools. Sometimes in our families, to our neighbors. We live the reality of Christ. It is just what we do. The centrality of Jesus. So here's what we see in this text. You see God acting in his people with an eye for the whole world. Affecting change in people's hearts that they might be saved. And the way that he does that is through the proclamation of the word of God. And always with Jesus at the center. Acts chapter 2, that's how it began. Ministry to the Jews. Acts chapter 13. When it expands now to the whole world, it hasn't changed. It's the same thing. Just in closing, I want to mention a few things to you and ask you to consider them. And this is, this is the part where you hear and think about it and think, okay, how does this make a difference now in my life? I don't want to just shake Ken's hand and say, good sermon, Pastor. Because it might not have been. <laughs> but hear these things and think, how do I live this out? What, what difference does this make to me? First of all, thanks for grace. Live a life of worship. Thankfulness to God that he has acted. The idea that God has, has chosen you and rescued you from sin and brought you to himself. Thank you, oh God, for your grace. Have you ever reflected on God's grace? Have you reflected lately on it? You do not deserve what you have. You do not deserve what you have. Thank you, God, that you did not give us what we deserved, but you, you saved us. Thank you, Lord, for grace. And what is our missional concern? In your own life, in our life as a church. Because a church that is not on mission is not, by definition, the church. We are not doing Participating in what God is doing. We heard about the world and the persecuted church in India. We support people across the world and here in the city. 
We live surrounded by people who are far from God and on the road that they're on, if they see it through to the end, are on their way to hell. You're not here during the week. You don't see all of what I see. But there are lost people all around this place. Do we have a concern for them? Because you know what? God does. God does. Do we? Our neighborhood, your neighborhood. Who lives beside you? I'm terrible at this. I find myself consciously thinking, I don't care. He's just grumpy. Lord, forgive. What is God's mission to the people around us? What are the opportunities to participate in it? And we don't want to be like the Jews. We don't, want to, we don't dare refuse God's mission to the Gentiles. Then the word of the Lord. We will be effective as a church. Your life will have joy and effectiveness in mission directly proportional to the energy that you invest in this book. I don't mean reading through the Bible in six months or a year. We don't have to get through the Bible. The Bible has to get through us. But to know this word, to let it speak to us, not just for us to think through it. As we know the word of the Lord and live it and proclaim it, God's kingdom will come. If your soul is dry as mine has so often been, I'm willing to bet that the Bible has been relegated to the perimeter. And, or, probably both of these things, because they happen together, the practice of prayer has been relegated to the perimeter. You might need to rethink the place that this book has in your life. I know that I need to rethink it again. God always brings me back to this place where I have to rethink it and recommit, not as a duty, but because life is here. You might need to do that as well. And finally... The reality that as followers of Christ, I guarantee you, we will face opposition. It might look different than it did here, but there will be things that get in our way. In our own heart, or from the people around us, or from a a media or government culture, there will be things that oppose us as we seek to live faithfully as followers of Jesus Christ. But, in the middle of all that, joy. It's weird too, isn't it, that those two things would go together. But to be a follower of Christ is to be filled with joy. And our level of joy is directly proportional to our engagement with his word and our ordering our lives under it. The more we commit ourselves to Christ and his gospel, the more opposition and the more joy we'll have. The further away we drift from this, our opposition will decrease, but so will our joy. And we'll be wondering why there's no life in this. It just feels flat. Opposition and joy. Thank you, God, for grace. We want to be concerned with the world and our neighbors. We want to engage with the word of God and face the opposition and experience the joy. In that way, I think Paul and Barnabas' experience in Acts 13 is a bit of a paradigm for what it means for us 2,000 years later to be followers of Jesus Christ. 
And I ask myself and I ask you in all seriousness, are you up for it? By God's grace, the answer is yes. Let's pray.